I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was booted! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Big special announcement. At long last, we are going back on the road to do live shows, and I could not be more excited! I, too, am fairly excited. (laughs) <laughs> I could tell. It's going to be great, Chuck. We're going to be back live on stage for the first time in two, three years? Uh, tw- We were on stage in 2020. At the very beginning of 2020, and we're going so on be, stage. Yeah, 23. Yeah, three years since we've Ugh. trod the boards, and we're about to trod them boards again, Chuck, on February 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. We're going to Seattle and Portland, or Portland and Seattle, and then for sure on February 3rd, we're going to wind the whole thing up in San Francisco, right? That's right. We're going back to Sketchfest, uh, our usually January home, but early February home this year. Uh, for my money, the best uh, comedy festival in the world, and uh, we're going to be going to Sketchfest. Mm-hmm. And again, we're not sure of the order yet. We don't have ticket links yet, but we do have a little bit more information. We just couldn't wait to tell you guys. So tickets are actually going to be on sale very soon. October 6th, there's going to be a pre-sale with a password, uh, and we will probably put those out on our social links. I'm not sure how you'll find out, but you'll find out. And then on (laughs) October 7th, there'll be general sale. We'll give you more information as we get it, but again, we just couldn't wait to tell you guys because we're too excited. That's right. And you know what we're doing? We've got a great, uh, working with some great new people with our social media stuff. So you might have noticed that our Instagram and our Facebook have some new and exciting things happening. So that's a great place to find information about the tours. Very nice. So we'll see you guys in the Northwest Coast this February. And the rest of you, who knows, 2023 could be a wild year. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh. There's Chuck. Jerry's here. And Jack Black's lurking around, which makes this stuff you should know. We got the facts on wax (laughs) at WSYSK. That's pretty great. Sorry. Pretty great. (laughs) You should have been a radio personality. (laughs) 
I used to want to be. I, I wanted to be a DJ for a while. <laughs> you came awfully close, man, I have to say. That was a pretty pretty close to a realized dream, if you ask me. Uh, well, and what's funny is is the saying wax and like our one of our local record stores here is wax and facts mm -hmm. an old dj saying wax mm -hmm. in this episode you will find out why they say wax yeah it's hopelessly outdated but yeah it still still <laughs> applies to, to an extent let's do this this is pretty fun i'm excited do you collect vinyl any i think you do a little bit right yeah a little bit um I don't like collect it. I just buy stuff that I want, but it, you know, I'm, I'm vinyl. <laughs> but I'm not just like, look, everybody, check out my collection. I just have a, a a selection of records. How about that? Yeah, my deal is I have my records. Most of my records that I had growing up, never got rid of them. Moved them every time, like a dummy. Yeah. Uh, I got uh inherited while still alive mm -hmm. my um stepfather's record collection mm -hmm. he didn't pass away but he just said here i'm done with these i'm so sick of music it's ridiculous <laughs> but that's where i got all that good like he has all the all that prog rock from the 70s he was awesome, way into that man. stuff sweet uh and then i started buying just sort of classic favorites of mine mm -hmm. basically kind of filling out newer classic favorites from when I stopped buying records mm -hmm. up to this point. So I'm kind of running out of room on my little three-banger shelf, so I'm slowing down the rate mm -hmm. of purchase, but uh, it's it's good. And through the miracle of modern technology, I can play a record through a Bluetooth set of Bluetooth speakers. That is amazing, but it's also a tragedy. Well, yeah, I wish I had a, <laughs> a plugged-in hi-fi system. I've got um I've got some like just Rockford or Rockfile or whatever shelf speakers yeah that are plugged into an um I guess a post amp or a preamp I don't know one of the amps but it's not <laughs> part of the record player and the uh -huh. record player's plugged into that and it seems kludgy enough that I'm like okay this seems pretty authentic yeah I mean you can tell we're experts here with our use of Rockford files and pre <laughs> right. preamp post amp <laughs> <laughs> right so i but I mean still, you don't have to be a total expert to to talk about vinyl, although there will certainly be um record store guys the the music equivalent of comic book guy who will write in and tell us how how much we just totally suck forever and like just got every single thing wrong. But this is not for those people. It's for everybody else who just wants to know how vinyl records work. How about that? I think that's great. Uh, and I think a few of these stats before we dive into the history are in order, uh, thanks to Dave Ruse, who pointed out that obviously in the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, and into the 80s some, um, certainly into the 80s, vinyl mm -hmm. records were sort of the thing. Mm -hmm. uh, at their peak in the 70s, there were uh, more than 50, Sorry, 15. 530 million records bought each year. Each year. Uh, which is about 60% with 8-track making up for the rest because, of course, you had to play something in your conversion van. Right. You couldn't really – most most cars weren't outfitted with uh, record players. That's right. Uh, but then the cassette came along and the CD and all but killed vinyl. Uh, they – accounted for 0.1% of music sales at some point in the 90s, mm -hmm. which is a pretty big drop, I would say, uh, but then made a comeback in the 2000s because of nostalgia and because of hipsters and 
audio files and certain movies and record store day and all other reasons. Yes, but I mean, like, if you if you could rewind back to 1997 and you ask somebody if, if they would ever, you know, see vinyl albums again, they would yeah. just laugh in your face. Like, it, sure. they were done. They were goners, right? Yeah. And so the idea that it came back is pretty, it's pretty remarkable as far as comebacks go. And then in 2020, I believe, vinyl records outsold CDs for the first time since 1986. That's, that's a heck awesome. of a comeback. And that's not even to say that CDs were doing that poorly. CDs actually had increased in sales uh, over the past few years as well. So it wasn't like CDs were just tumbling downward while vinyl was kind of slowly creeping upward. They were both creeping up, and vinyl just overtook CDs. I think in 2020, the year that vinyl overtook CDs, um, 27 and a half million vinyl records were sold around the world. In 2021, it jumped up to 41.7 million. Yeah, baby. So, yeah, vinyl's definitely back, and there's a lot of reasons why it's back. And um, I say we start with the history of the whole thing to maybe explain why people like vinyl. I think that's where you kind of find the birth of the whole thing. Uh, Totally. Some other good news, by the way, just to uh, drag that out a bit, is that cool video I sent you from How It's Made. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, they went to that music uh, record, that record pressing plant in Nashville, mm-hmm. which is, I think, still one of the biggest ones. And they had to re-expand. They were like, hey, everybody, remember when we shut down almost? Yeah. Well, we're, we're, we have to open up a bigger place now, uh, which is awesome. And it's a great comeback story. Yeah, and I would guess the people who were buying the 0.1% of music sales as vinyl in the 80s and 90s, that had to just be exclusively DJs, right? Oh, no. I mean, there were always vinyl collectors. Um, They were just not nearly as many for a while. Hmm. It wasn't exclusively DJs because the DJs, they they didn't even use uh, records anymore, did they? I mean, that's a pretty recent phenomenon. They were using vinyl like throughout the 80s and 90s for sure. I guess we should look into that, like when they switched to the the carts. Um, I would say in the 10s maybe. Really? (laughs) <laughs> I'm just guessing, but <laughs> if it gets a response like that out of you, I'll guess every time. I don't think so. I think they've had the carts for a while. So the 2000 aughts? I mean, I think before that. Someone will know and tell us. Oh, whatever. I mean, I'm we do work guessing. for a major radio company. We should just ask somebody. We'll ask somebody. <laughs> we'll get them on the phone. <laughs> we'll call uh, in. We'll be the 99th caller. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So we're talking the history now, Chuck, I'd say, um, and we're talking vinyl records, but you can't really talk about vinyl records without, like, the beginning of records or recorded sound in general. Um, and most people say who came up with recorded and played back sound, Thomas Edison, of course. It was sure. in the, you know, the, the last quarter of the 19th century, I think. And you're right. Like, yes, Thomas Edison definitely gave us what we kind of understand as recorded and played back sound. But um, there was a guy who came a good 20 years before him, although apparently Edison wasn't aware of his work. But he was a guy from France, Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville. Great name. Yes, and um, I've seen him referred to as Scott. Apparently, that's his last name. And I guess he's from Martinville, France. Okay. Oh, that would make sense. So, um, Scott was um, tinkering around with something called a phonautograph. And if you um, look into it, and we'll talk about how how um, vinyl records are made later, but, like, he basically said, here's how we're going to make records from here on out. 
here's the at least the rough contours of the whole thing. Yeah, and it it's very rudimentary, but as you will see when we describe it compared to what they did later on, mm-hmm. it's sort of the same idea, which is, and we'll get into how he did it, but which is basically using a, a vibrating tool mm-hmm. to cut, and it vibrates because of sound, and it makes a, a vibrating representation of whatever sound you're making and cuts that into something. Yeah, what's astounding, this is the most astounding thing that I've learned in a really long time, is what is captured on record is a natural language of sound that humans stumbled upon. And one of the first people, possibly the first person to stumble upon it is is Edward Leon Scott de Martinville. And like, like this is this has always existed. We just never tried to capture it. It just didn't occur to us. But when you look at a record, you are you are holding in your hands a, a captured, encoded representation of a sound that was made at some point in time. And Scott was the first person to figure out how to capture this. Yeah, and it's funny. Even after having learned this, watched all the videos, mm-hmm. being able to regurgitate how it's done, it's still a bit like black magic to me. Sure. How you say something into a microphone and it ends up being cut into a vinyl record and a needle can bring that sound back out. It's it's still just sort of mind-blowing to me. Yeah, there is like definitely a certain amount of black magic to it and it's pretty cool. Like it's the cool kind, you know what I'm saying? It's not the kind where like somebody <laughs> breaks a leg because of it. Uh, all right, so should we talk about the phonautograph? Yeah, so uh, what Scott did was he took a, um, and I'm not quite sure what inspired him to do this, but he took an acoustic trumpet, you know, like the old gramophone, the crank record players that had like the big horn coming out of it. Yeah, like, what'd you say, Sonny? Exactly. That's an acoustic trumpet. And he put a little membrane over the, the small end, the narrow end of it, and he attached a boar's hair, one single boar's hair, to that membrane. And then uh, the the boar's hair was touching a glass plate, I think. And on the glass plate, he had put something called um, lamp black, which is like soot, basically. Just put a nice coating of it. And then he spoke into the large end of that acoustic trumpet, and that black magic started. <laughs> That's right. And so what happened is that boar's hair bristle would uh, wiggle and vibrate along, you know, to match whatever sound he was making. Right. And it it drew basically what Dave refers to, I think, astutely as a sonic fingerprint. Yeah. Uh, through that soot, it drew sort of the the visual representation of sound for the first time. Um, at the time, uh, I think he called it a, a natural stenography, is what mm-hmm. Scott called it. But at the time, he was like, "So great! Um, I promise that this thing, maybe one day, will be able to make a sound." But we don't know how to do that. And everyone went, what are you even talking about, dude? Um, (laughs) But through the miracle of science, they actually got a computer to uh, virtually play. Virtually is in, you know, not like virtually, like it actually did. (laughs) But they they used a virtual digital stylus Mm -hmm. to actually be able to play these early recordings of this dude, like, singing French songs and saying things. <laughs> oh, yeah, like Frere Jaca and all that? It wasn't Frere Jaca. It was... Uh, uh, well, then who know. cares? No, I've got the song in here somewhere. But, uh, I mean, it, you know, it's kind of creepy sounding, but it is... And then some of it is just sort of hums and noises, but mm-hmm. 
it is a human being. Uh, it's Au Claire de la Lune. Uh, it is a actual human being speaking words and singing words and uh, wow. long before Edison did. So, yeah, it's a good 20 years before Edison. And there was one other thing that Scott figured out um, that was really important, and he figured it out right out of the gate, is that when you um, are, are etching on that, um, that glass plate covered in lamp black with a boar's hair, the boar's hair is just kind of wiggling, right? The sound vibrations are making it wiggle, mm-hmm. and that wiggle is transferring acoustic waves into mechanical energy, that's mm-hmm. being captured in those etchings. But since the boar's, um, the boar's hair is just in one place, you have to move that glass plate. Yeah, very key. And you can't just move it at any rate. It has to be a specified rate. And he figured out how to move that glass plate at, I think, uh, one meter a second, which is really fast. Um, and that means that if you, re, if you put that thing the other direction— um, at one meter a second, then it would play. And what he figured out was that RPMs, rotations per minute, what would come to, to be a huge part of record playing was essential because if you do it too fast, you have the same amount of information. It's just compressed time-wise because you're moving that glass plate faster than one meter a second. So it comes out sounding like Alvin and the Chipmunks. If you move it too slow, less than one meter a second, it's that same amount of information, but it takes up a longer amount of time and you come out sounding like us on, you know, half speed or something like that, which people like to do when they smoke marijuana cigarettes, <laughs> I hear. Uh, although, to be clear, he was not using revolutions because it wasn't spinning yet. No, point. no. What came to be known line. is RPMs, but it yeah. has to do with adjusting like a set frequency. It's extraordinarily important that the playback and the recording are done at the same frequency, and Scott figured that out out of the gate. That's right. So put a pin in that. Uh, Edison comes along and... Um, wasn't really working from Scott's uh, work, but uh, was arrival of Alexander Graham Bell and was uh, working on telephone products and decided to try and record phone calls. And he had a big breakthrough when he attached a stylus to a diaphragm, a lot like Scott did. And I keep wanting to call him Martinville. I know. Scott from Martinville. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um and then the, you know, exactly in the same way, the vibrations of the diaphragm were etched, in this case, onto a sheet of paraffin wax with a needle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he was basically like, wait a minute, we can record, we, it doesn't just have to be phone calls, we can record all <laughs> kinds of things. Like, one day there shall be rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And he figured that out. He was like, yeah, no, forget the phone. I'm doing something else with this. So he, he moved from that paraffin wax sheet to metal cylinders wrapped in aluminum foil, right? Yeah, and it's it's almost like the, I mean, sort of in a way, it's almost like the inverse of a, how a music box works. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's a metal cylinder, but with a music box, there are little nubs that uh, prick metal combs of different pitches. Right. In this case, you're, you're cutting a groove. Uh, and, you know, if you had a sheet of tinfoil at home and got a toothpick, you know, you can drag it along and make an impression. That's essentially what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Right. So the fact that he moved over to cylinders was pretty progressive. That actually was um, the way that music was uh, captured and played back for a while, um, was on these cylinders. And uh, Alexander Graham Bell uh, was the one who took these cylinders and changed them from aluminum foil into wax. There you have it. 
Yeah, so wax cylinders were really popular. That was how you listened to music back then, how you recorded music and listened to it. And um, I have a little anecdote from Yumi, actually. Ooh. She, she found out that when she Bring was living in— <laughs> she, she, I'm going to tell it on her behalf. Okay. But I'll, I'll put on a wig and try to tell it in a higher-pitched <laughs> voice. Oh, I've seen that before. So um, she found out that this some guy who had, like, the best record collection in the country, possibly the world, lived, like, 30 minutes away from her. Mm-hmm. So she and some friends went and visited this guy. His name is Joe Boussard. And he's still around, and he still has this fantastic record collection. Um, and most of it is pre-1950 stuff. Oh, wow. But he has original wax cylinders, like wow. from the 19th century that he played for them. <laughs> Man. And she said they were like African-American spirituals. She's like, it was clearly people sitting on a porch singing this stuff. Yeah. And it was like they, they, these people had sung this in one take on a porch in like the 1890s or something like that. And there she was in, you know, 2000, whatever, listening to it played back, which is pretty sweet. And she said, this is lame. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear some rock and or roll. Uh, that's an awesome story. We had, it made me think uh, or remember rather that we had a a hand crank phonograph growing up in my house. My, wow. My, I guess my dad got it at some point. Mm-hmm. And it was cool. You know, we had old records and we didn't sit around and listen to them, but my brother and I would put on one of those old records and crank it up every now and then. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's cool. It sounds kind of like a horror movie, but it's like, uh, it's just, it's a neat experience to see sort of the early technology at work. There is something really unsettling about a 1920s record being played. There's yeah. just something about it. It's <laughs> like, for some reason, it always seems like the singer wants to harm you, but is pretending <laughs> they don't. I know, even especially because they're they're always singing about good times. And <laughs> exactly. it, it'll like warble, and you're like, no, 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 you got a knife in your hand. <laughs> right. Exactly. Slick back hair and some crazy huge <laughs> smile. Um, all right. So Edison uh, and Bell are both working on this stuff. Mm-hmm. Bell has got his wax cylinder going. Um, he played it back on something called a graphophone. Uh, this was in 1887. You crank that handle, it rotates that wax cylinder, and it plays it back uh, through an acoustic trumpet, um, which I think we had one on ours that was just for show, but awesome. there was an actual kind of rudimentary speaker underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what amplified the sound. And then, of course, later on, the hand crank was replaced with a motor. And just to explain the hand crank, too, you don't have to keep cranking it. You would crank it a bunch, and then kind of hit go, and then it would store up that mechanical energy and rotate the the player. Right. But that was still cylinder, right? That was still the wax cylinder. Not, okay. Obviously, at my house, we didn't have those, but yeah. But so we're working not even necessarily just wax, but we're working with cylinder. That was how you played back a recorded sound. And it, it was like that until a guy came along, I think in the 1890s, named Emil Berliner. He was German-American. And he came up with the gramophone, which probably sounds familiar because Berliner's invention, uh, which was shellac records, he was the first one to say, forget these cylinders, let's put, let's put this stuff on discs and come up with rotations per minute, and just, he made all these innovations. Um, His invention was the standard from the 1890s to 1950. That was how you listen to music was this guy's invention, the gramophone. Yeah, which, you know, the main reason why is because you could actually reproduce these Mm -hmm. en masse. You could create, like, thousands of copies of disc records 
which was not something you could really do with the wax cylinders. It was very expensive. took a lot of time to reproduce them. Uh, he figured out how to make these molds of a master recording and press them into records, which is, it really set the stage. I mean, things have changed a little bit, but it really set the stage for how we still do it today. Yeah, I mean, it's it's virtually the same. It's just, you know, a little more advanced today, but the principles are, are certainly the same. The big difference, though, is this was not vinyl that this guy was making. Like I said, it's no. shellac, and shellac is a natural substance that was basically, uh, an, it's a natural polymer. It's like natural plastic, basically. It comes out of the lac bug, which I think is native to Southeast Asia, if I'm not mistaken. So it was expensive to produce, to shellac, enough shellac to make a record, because, again, this stuff's coming out of a bug. I got a not... question on that. What? It, it was from the female lack. Is that why it's called she lack? <laughs> Maybe. I think it is. That's pretty great. If it is, that's wonderful. That's a great old-timey play on words. Well, I'm going to say that's fact. <laughs> okay. Because that's all you have that. to do these days, right? Just say something. Yeah, anybody who could contradict that is long dead anyway, so <laughs> it's all good. Well, I think, you know, we put a pin in this whole revolutions per minute. Should we go ahead and explain that? Yes, because Scott was the <laughs> one who figured that out, and uh, it it just became a it's it's essential to reproducing or recording sound, right? Like you have to have it um, recorded at a set frequency because the frequency affects. Is it the pitch where it goes really high or really low? Is that pitch? Sure. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I forgot you're self-taught. Yeah. Okay, so it affects somehow because again, the the like a sound wave makes a wave, and if you compress it, it it's still the same amount of information. It's just over a shorter amount of time, and that makes it again sound like Alvin and the Chipmunks. That's right. Uh, so what the old records from kind of up into the 1950s, I think, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe it was later than that. When did they change? You know, from 78 to 33 and a third. Uh, well, the first one came out in like 1948, so okay. I'm sure they were still selling those shellac 78s into the 50s. All right, so 78 RPMs was the standard for a while. And if you're wondering how they came up with this RPMs, it's very easy. It's because the motors that they used uh, at the time ran at 3,600 revolutions per minute. If you tried to think about either manufacturing a record or playing a record at 3,600 revolutions per minute. <laughs> that's pretty funny to think about. Uh, it's impossible, basically. So that's where gears, your old friend gears, come in, because the purpose of a gear is to step down the speed of a motor. Hmm. Uh, and in this case, they had uh, a gear with 46 teeth. So when you divide those 3,600 revolutions, you step it down with a 46-tooth gear, and you eventually get down to uh, 78 Technically, 78.26 RPMs. Yeah. I still just, don't understand all that, but I accept <laughs> it as, as real. Well, I mean, yeah, it's it's what a, we should do. Some, um, no, never mind. I don't want to do how gears work because it's way more complicated than it seems on the surface. Okay. Well, that sounds like right up our alley. We can, <laughs> no. we can confuse everyone further with that one. Uh, but at any rate, it steps down that motor via a gear, and we just do simple division, and that's how you got the 78. So 78 is pretty fast. I mean, it's more than twice as fast as a normal, like, uh, LP album today spins. And it's shellac, which is pretty hard and brittle, so you can imagine if that thing flew off, it could 
take Great Aunt Edgar's head <laughs> clean off in the in the conservatory. Sure, like the recording artist intended. <laughs> right, that was an abandoned Clue uh, uh, murder weapon. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he did it. He did it with a shellac record shard. <laughs> right, right. So the RPM is really important, Chuck, um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, it was really fast in it, so it was dangerous, at least in my opinion. But more importantly, because they were spinning so fast, you had less time to get that yeah. information across. So that meant that you had, you know, maybe I think a, a twelve-inch record could hold four to five minutes of music or of sound on each side. Yeah, right? there's only like nine songs back then. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, there were a lot of problems with uh, these shellac 78s, but um, they were a huge advance, a huge leap forward. But when vinyl came along, it changed everything. And Chuck, we are almost 30 minutes into this episode. I say we take our first commercial break. Wowie, wow. Let's do it. Okay. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 
I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so we are moving into the 20th century, and finally, uh, vinyl comes along. Um, it is called polyvinyl chloride or PVC. So those white PVC pipes you see in the big box uh, hardware store, sure. it's the same same thing. It's a type of plastic. And in the 1930s is when record companies started to kind of experiment with this because all the aforementioned problems with shellac uh, being very breakable and being very brittle. Mm-hmm. And I believe uh, Victor, which was a division of RCA, was the first – producer of vinyl records in 1930 but it did not go well because it, it took a little while before they had they had all the playback equipment sort of synced up working well together so in this case uh, the pickups used to amplify to send the signal to the amplifier uh, it's sort of like a guitar pickup they mm-hmm. were too heavy and it cut through the the vinyl because it was uh, not shellac it was used to shellac so they had to uh, sort of rejigger everything, and it wasn't until after World War II uh, that they really put in, like, all, kind of all their efforts toward making vinyl work. Yeah, because there was a shellac shortage during World War II, so everybody's like, okay, we need to figure out this vinyl stuff for a bunch of different reasons. But one of those things that came out of it was the vinyl record, and most people credit a guy at CBS named Peter Goldmark for inventing the the vinyl record that we know and love today. That's right. Uh, he basically said he, he figured out how to make it stronger. Uh, he figured out how to etch the groove smaller so you could mm-hmm. fit more stuff. Uh, so he got it down to 0. 0.003 inches. Wow. Uh, I think shellac's maxed out at 0. 0.01 inches. Yeah. So a lot more music, basically, per record. Yeah, because in addition to more grooves, which means more information, which means more length of time of recorded sound on one side, it also played at a slower RPM. So it had more time to play all that information, too. So you could just pack, I think, 22 and a half minutes per side on a, on a 33 and a third RPM um, LP, which is what they're called, long play uh, albums. The, the basically the vinyl record that Goldmark invented. That's right. And here's a fun little tidbit that uh, mm-hmm. Dave found. I never realized, but um, album actually predates the invention of the vinyl LP because when people only had the 78s, they stored them in sleeves called albums. And uh, I think when the LPs finally came out, it held about the same amount as an album 
worth of 78s, so they called them albums. Yeah, like one record, one vinyl record could hold probably five or six um, shellac records worth. Yeah, so that's Very kind cool. of a, a boast, I guess. This this one record's an album, <laughs> you sucker. Uh, but now we get to, um, you know, basically what Dave called the War of Speeds. Uh, you mentioned the um, 78s finally came down to 33 and a third. Uh, so Columbia Records reduces the first LP in 1948, um, and RCA is who released the 45, which, you know, people collect 45s too. They're the smaller ones that only have mm-hmm. a song on each side. It's like mm-hmm. the thickest single. Yeah, that's just exactly what it is. So RCA, Victor, and Columbia had that that war of the speeds that you mentioned to try to say, you know, the 33 LP is, um, RPM LP is better. No, the 45 RPM single is better. And uh, the public just said, peace, everyone, peace. Well, let's, <laughs> let's have them all. Yeah, I mean, all you needed to do was have a machine that can vary its playback speed, mm-hmm. and you can have both. There didn't need to be one or the other. And they... They did realize that there are some people who who just want the single version. Like, I guess since there's been music, there have been people that like singles. I remember my first 45. Do you remember what yours was? I didn't collect 45s. So I actually got into 45s. I was never big time into them, but mm-hmm. I got into them because I just wanted one single song. What was uh, it? It was Sweet Georgia Brown <laughs> because my family had gone to a Globetrotters game oh, yeah. and I was like, I really like that uh-huh. song. So my parents <laughs> took me to Peaches Records and I got oh, yeah. Sweet Georgia Brown and I must have driven my family crazy without realizing it, playing Sweet Georgia Brown over and over again. Oh, that's adorable. And then uh, do you remember what your first LP was? Absolutely. Uh, Billy Joel's Glass Houses. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, how old were you? Well, it was whenever that came out. Uh, I feel okay. like I was 10-ish. Okay. But I'd have to look at the date. My brother and I uh, adorably split the cost. So we, <laughs> it was like great. five bucks, and we each threw in 250 and got glass houses. That's awesome. Um, my first LP was Seven in the Ragged Tiger, the Duran Duran record. Ooh, very it's nice. a good record. Um, and I think I got it around second grade. I was always, I think I mentioned this too, I was always a late adopter. Mm-hmm. So I was buying records long into the cassette run. I was always like, no, I, I didn't want to believe it. It was <laughs> like taking over. And then I was buying cassettes far into CDs, and I was buying CDs. I mean, I have CDs that are four or five years old. <laughs> <laughs> wow. For, from now. <laughs> I didn't even know you could get those anymore. Yeah, well, the problem was I have a uh, – probably older than that because my pickup truck – that I will never sell is mm-hmm. now just sort of our work and camping truck. Sure. It has a, a CD player in it. Oh, so yeah. I was buying CDs for that. Yeah, I can see you, like, not giving up the ghost because, number one, you're a very loyal person, so I could see you being loyal yeah, to records. <laughs> and then also, at the time, you didn't know you were ever going to have a choice again, so you were fighting against the death of the LP vinyl yeah. record because that's what it seemed like when cassettes and then CDs came out. Yeah, I have no cassettes, and I, in fact, made my switch to CDs because someone stole my 100 cassette uh, carrier mm, out mm, of my mm. friend's trunk of my car in Little Five Points when we went to a show Man. at the Variety Playhouse where you and I performed. Yeah, and sold out, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. So they stole that, and I was like, all right, I guess I got to buy CDs now. So, <laughs> yeah, that's it for me, everybody. I'm done yeah. with cassettes. 
So one other thing that kind of came out of vinyl records, too, is um, because you could put more information into one, they figured out how to actually create stereo records starting in 1958. And I can't imagine what this yeah. must have seemed like to the people back in 1958. Because yeah. up to that point, everything was mono. It was one channel. So all of the sound came through one channel. And you could have two speakers, five speakers, ten speakers. It wouldn't matter because they were all playing the exact same information. Mm-hmm. And it didn't, it just, what you could just sit in front of one speaker and get the same experience. With stereo, you have two different channels coming out, usually right and left. And right's going to the right speaker, left's going to the left speaker. And when you sit between them, you don't get the sensation that the sound is coming out of either speaker. It seems to be coming out of the space between the speaker in front of you and gives you this much more immersive, rich experience. And they figured out how to do that on a vinyl record, which if you're talking about black magic to begin with, just just for creating a record, creating a stereo record is even more impressive, if you ask me. Yeah, they did it. They figured out how to etch the walls of the groove. Mm-hmm. One side of the wall, the outside wall was the right channel. The inside wall was the left. And when you play it back, that needle reads both sides at once. Uh, the Beatles were one of the first, uh, uh, well, yeah, I, I could safely say one of the first bands to really experiment with stereo recording. And all of a sudden you had like Paul in one ear, John in the other singing mm-hmm. harmonies. Right. Um, and, you know, when headphones became more and more the norm, this is when this really paid dividends. Yeah. Like Mitch Kramer listening to music in his room <laughs> at the end of the night in Dazed and Confused. That guy, uh, Wiley Wiggins, works in podcasts some. Now. Oh, yeah. Hey, Wiley Wiggins, how you doing? I know. I was listening to the great, great podcast. You must remember this from Karina Longworth, mm-hmm. yeah. the movie podcast. And at the end of one of the episodes, I actually sat through the credits and it said, additional research and transcription by Wiley Wiggins. <laughs> that's awesome, like, man. That's super cool. I don't know if he's still doing that, but hello to both of you. So um, I watched, I watched, yeah, for real. I watched, um, uh, have you ever seen Waking Life? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He starred in that. It was He did really yeah. great in that. But also, just in Days and Confused, he's always going to be Mitch Kramer to me. But I, I watched Days and Confused the other day, and I was like, this movie still holds up. And totally. then I was like, there was no reason for Matthew McConaughey to do any other character ever, ever. again because <laughs> everything he does is Wooderson. It's Wooderson yeah. in space for Interstellar. It's right. Wooderson, like, as a lawyer and the Lincoln lawyer. Like, it's just right. Wooderson all the time. And, yeah. like, you, if you go back and watch Days and Confused, you're like, yeah, he and Wooderson are one and the same person, basically. Yeah, it's Wooderson selling Cadillacs or whatever that is. <laughs> Which one? Uh, doesn't he? Is it Cadillacs or is it Lincoln that he does the commercials for? Oh yeah, 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 uh, Lincoln, where he just drives around and waxes philosophical. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> totally. I forgot about that ad campaign. That was all right. It was all right, all right, all right. <laughs> all right. Well, let's take our final break, and we're going to come back and no doubt stumble through how <laughs> records are actually made right after this. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was booted! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and last on the business. 
I understand now. It is a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Okay, Record Store guys, this is the point where you can just leave us, and we'll say thank you for listening up to this point. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a little clumsy because it's a little black magic-y, and it's, um, they're also made different ways depending on who's producing the record. It's generally the same process, but, sure. uh, you know, every cook has their own recipe. 
Yeah, so the essential process, I guess, is you you it's v- ridiculously similar to what Scott and Edison and Alexander Graham Bell were doing, which is you basically put sound or music into some sort of amplifying device, no longer an acoustic trumpet, instead some again amplifier that that makes a little needle wiggle and as that needle wiggles it's etching that transcription of that sound wave into a mechanical record of it that's why records are called records it's a record of that sound and they do this with basically a, a turntable called a cutting lathe and the, now i understand why they call it cutting a record i, I had no idea until yeah. I, I guess yesterday um why they call and it pressing. that Yes, and pressing makes sense, too, and it will in a second. But it's just like this turntable, but it looks like a turntable and like an industrial an industrial turntable, and that's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's just a, a large machine. Uh, the one that the video I saw was the one in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if there are different chisels, but they use an actual ruby gemstone chisel at yeah. their factory. Uh, and that vibrating ruby chisel cuts that groove in a uh, – they still use lacquer, at least at this place. They use a lacquer disc. Right. And this is called the mother disc. Um, it's kind of cool. In the end, you end up with uh, – or you can end up with as much as 2,600 feet of grooved lines, uh, which is seven football fields. I don't know how many Big Macs. Uh, <laughs> but if you took, like, the lines of an LP uh, – and I don't, I don't know if that's both sides or one side. One. Is that, is that just one side? Mm-hmm. That would be seven football fields long, which is pretty amazing. Oh, okay. So, so no, for some reason on the shellac record, the mother record, they fit way more information in from what I saw. I saw that an LP, the average LP, like 22 minutes, is like um, about one and a half football fields long. Oh, really? That's what I saw. But I saw what you were talking about in that video, and I'm like, where's the distinction here? And I couldn't figure it out. So anywhere between one and a half to seven football fields, that one groove. And by the way, if you look at a record, those grooves, that's one long concentric groove that you could stretch out as a single line. Had never occurred to me. Did you realize that before? Yeah, sure. Because where would it end? It's a spiral. I don't know. I hadn't really thought it through. <laughs> but that's a great trivia question that you could get a lot of people on. How many grooves are on the average LP record? And the answer is two, one for each side. Yeah, although what about the little space? I didn't really look up how they did that, the little space between the songs. It's, that's still I, a groove, it must I guess. Be a, a, yes, but it must have just a blank there must yeah. not be any etchings in that groove. It's still they tell a all the musicians like shut up for be five quiet, seconds. Shut up. Yeah, right. room, we and need a one room. and a two. <laughs> What's it called? Room tone. Yeah, room tone. And by the way, this is this is how records are mass produced. Like if you go to Third Man Records in Nashville and sit in the little booth, like it literally cuts the sound you make directly onto a record that you take home. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that guy that Yumi visited had his own. Like, you could, if you have $50,000 sure <laughs> to spend to mess around with, like, you can yeah. get yourself a cutting lathe. But So you've got that mother record that's made from shellac, you said, right? Right. And then they take that and they coat it with some sort of metal. I don't know if it's platinum. I think they said nickel was involved. But they use electrolysis, and they make a negative of that record. So they get the metal in all of the grooves, and when they pop the metal off of that mother shellac record, mm-hmm. they have they have the, the a mirror 
No, yeah, a mere opposite image of it. Rather than grooves and, and etchings and valleys, it's bumps and ridges and mountains. And that's what they use to press records from, right? Yeah, that's called the master stamp. Uh, and that master stamp can make about 100,000 records. Man. Uh, I think it is nickel, or at least what they use at this one uh, company that I saw, the largest okay. one. Okay. Uh, and that will harden up into silver, and you peel it away. And then you kind of cut it and trim it up so it's actually round. Mm-hmm. And then when you go to press the actual vinyl, they dump, and we'll get to why they're black in a second because that's super interesting. But you get these black polyvinyl pellets. You melt them down mm-hmm. uh, in a hopper, basically. And what plops out is a little puck-shaped, like a little biscuit, basically, of vinyl. Mm-hmm. Uh, you put the label on it because that helps center things, apparently. And then you have, you know, the one side of the record on the top and the other side on the bottom, these silver stamps. Mm-hmm. And you apply about 60 tons of pressure, and it just squishes it out and presses it into thin vinyl. Uh, if you think it might be a little messy around the edges, you are absolutely right. Um, they trim that off with a machine uh, so it's perfectly round, and that excess stuff is called flash, and they actually just throw that back to use later on. It's recycled. Yeah, they remelt it, right? And just yeah, which it. is yeah. awesome. Totally. There are I saw I saw people online who say that records made from that reused flashing do not sound as good as other records. I'm like, dude. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. Wow. Come on, man. You need another a second <laughs> hobby. It doesn't just have to be record collecting. And they didn't use the word actually at all, right? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> they were just daring you to say something. So, um, so that's it. Like that's wh- that's how one record is made. And you said you can use one of those um, uh, master uh, uh, negatives for a hundred thousand records. So I guess they make a few of those, and they have a run, and that's that. You have your your whole run of records created. Um, and you mentioned something about records being black. Like, mm-hmm. they don't have to be black. I think I have at least one or two that are, are colored, yeah, um, like red or something like that. clear ones. They're yeah. cool. Yeah, it is cool. It's definitely different. But um, black is the, the color of choice for a couple of reasons. One, PVC uh, is, some, is like a natural insulator. So static electricity can build up in it, which is nay good because static electricity attracts dust and dust messes up your records. It can cause them to skip and do all sorts of terrible stuff. It can clog up your needle. Um, And then so they add this stuff called carbon black. I think half of a percent of your record's material is carbon black. And that actually makes it a little better of a conductor, so it repels dust a little better. Yeah, so that'll that'll help them. And apparently, I never thought of this either, but you just— you see dust better on a black record. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're, you know, you're more apt to keep your records cleaner probably. Uh, and I never really noticed that, but you, yeah, on my clear records, I, I can't see any dust. I have to say um, some of the records that I have, I, I got from our buddy Van Nostrin, who's oh. always been very oh, sure. generous yeah, yeah. in sending records that most people would not want to hear. <laughs> um, Engelbert Humperdinck I have, thanks to uh-huh. him. Yeah. Um, I've got a uh, one about Jimmy Carter, um, a comedy record, um, the, the uh, Disco Duck, but get this. Oh, yeah. There's no Disco Duck anywhere in it. It's just like a kind of a jazzy, upbeat um, covers of disco songs without oh. the duck. I don't know where Van Nostrum found this, but it's pretty astounding where the the records that he comes up with and sends. So thanks, oh, Van Nostrum. I used to listen to comedy records growing up, too. I, as a kid, I would 
get George Carlin's class clown or how I, and I'm still not good at impressions, but how I got interested was the uh, Rich Little Records, The First Family Rides mm-hmm. Again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a big thing, like comedy albums. And some comedians today are are getting vinyl pressed of their specials and stuff, which is kind of cool. It is cool. Because those comedians are flush with Netflix money, so all of them can <laughs> afford a $50,000 cutting lane. So we kind of explained, I think, in an, our own way how they're made. <laughs> But then there's the black magic of actually hearing these things. Uh, you can sit around and look at those grooves all day, but you wanted, what you want to do is get up and dance, right? <laughs> Pretty much, and that's that. And that's records. Um, <laughs> Chuck, if you could also afford not just a cutting lathe, but an electron microscope, mm-hmm. um, you could do worse than putting a record underneath it because you would see some <laughs> freaky stuff going on in those grooves. That groove itself holds a bunch of different little etchings. And each sound has its own etching in this groove. And again, these grooves are sometimes like an eighth of a millimeter um, thick. Like they've gotten way thinner than when Peter Goldmark first invented vinyl records. And they hold so much information that you can actually physically see. Just like um, uh, Edward Leon Scott of Martinville um, saw himself on that glass plate. If you look really, really closely through an electron mic- microscope, you can see the same thing, and you are literally looking at a physical encoding of sound. The sound wave has been transferred mechanically through that that ruby, um, uh, what'd you call it? The carving thing? Chisel. Chisel. Uh, onto a record, and now if you put your record on your turntable, play it back at the appropriate rotations per minute, very important, and you put the arm down, what you're doing is you are putting down a needle or a stylus that is a very sensitive, uh, usually industrial gemstone like sapphire, maybe ruby. I saw a diamond most most frequently. Sure. And that, that actually reads every single one of those little tiny squiggles in, that, in those grooves from start to finish, and it retranslates that mechanical encoding through to the cartridge, which translates that into electricity, which uh, creates an audible sound that has to be amplified and run through speakers. And when you do all that, you're listening to a record. That's right. And uh, I kind of compared it to a guitar pickup. If uh, Which one do we explain that in? Was that in the Les Paul Fender Definitely. one? Definitely, yeah. It had to be. But it's just sort of the same idea as a guitar pickup. It's It uses copper wire and magnets um, to create this, you know, electric current. And in this case, it's induced at the same frequency as that little uh, needle wiggling through the grooves. Yeah. And then you have to obviously that you still don't hear anything unless you feed that through an amplifier. Right. And then eventually speakers. If you listen really closely, you can hear the faintest bit of it, but yeah. it's nothing to dance to. You're right. No. Um, Dave, Dave uh, helped us with this, right? This was a Dave jam. It was Dave. So Dave um, kind of drove something home for me when he talked about how the middle C on a piano is um, uh, vibrates at an amplitude of 261.63 hertz, mm-hmm. which means that th- it vibrates to create that sound, that middle C on a piano, it vibrates at 261.63 vibrations per second. That's just one note on a piano, and that is encoded in a record. When you play a middle C on a piano and you mm-hmm. capture it on a record, um, you that's just one thing. Now, consider all of the different notes, all the different sounds, all the different instruments that are, are 
encoded onto a record, and it's there. Each one is physically encoded in the right proper time, the right spot on that mm-hmm. groove in that record playback um, on that particular RPM. And it, when you start to put all this together and realize how complicated it is, it really gives you an appreciation for what's going on with vinyl and, and why people love it so much. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of easy to wrap your head around someone plucking a a piano string. Mm-hmm. Or a lute. Or rather hammering a piano string. That would be a harpsichord if it was plucked. <laughs> in a middle C, like ding, 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 and how that might be translated. But when you think about a groove being cut that represents, like, guitar feedback from Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Which is a sound, but it's not like a... Uh, it's not like you think of a familiar note being plucked or something mm-hmm. uh, or the sound of distorted guitar. It, it's just, it's amazing. It, it is black magic. Yep, I'm with you. So um, a lot of people, Chuck, say vinyl is the only way to go and other people say take your vinyl and shove it um, because <laughs> digital music is the only way to go. And there's apparently a pretty big argument about all this. Yeah, I mean, you know, your vinyl enthusiasts will say it has a warmer sound. Uh, they'll say that's as close to the original waveform as you can get uh, because it's directly from a master recording and it's not digitized and compressed. Um, I And Dave points out, and I fully agree, that part of this, you know, I'm sure there are audiophiles who have an ear that can really differentiate, differentiate? Mm-hmm. Um, sounds on a really minute level. I'm mm-hmm. not one of them. Um, so for me, part of it is the... The ritual of the record, album Definitely. art, liner notes, holding an album and looking mm-hmm. at it while you're playing it, like all the stuff that was lost when records shrunk to cassettes, and you could still sort of do it then, and you could kind of do it with CD cases and liner notes, but the record was really like, it was it was a part of the whole experience, large format art. Yes. Uh, but there are people who say that, you know, like you said, that digital gets rid of those pops and clicks that a lot of people like from records. Um, it has a wider frequency range than vinyl does, so it can hit the highs and the lows more accurately. Um, I mean, I, I like it all. I don't think you have to choose. I don't think you have to choose either, but um, I, I saw a really good description of the difference between digital recordings and analog recordings, which is what is meant to be captured on a record. There was a guy, a recording engineer named Michael Connolly, mm-hmm. who um, said, let's say that you want to measure your height and you stand next to a door jam and you put a pencil along the top of your head and you mark the door jam. What you've just done is created an analog of your height that mark stands in for your height, right? Another way you could do it is stand still and hold the measuring tape and then see what your height actually is. And then you take that measurement and you transcribe it to another medium, like you write it down in a notebook. And the thing is, is your analog is truer. It's more faithful because Mm -hmm. it's an actual representation of your actual height. But um, the, the measurement can be reproduced much more easily. You can go from notebook to notebook and just write down that same measurement every time without any loss of information. And that's not true from that door jam pencil mark because let's say you move, you want to take a door jam with you to to remember how tall you were and you install (laughs) it at your next house. It might not be at quite the same, you know, uh, height off of the floor as it was before. So those are those pops and clicks that get added into it when you reproduce a sound 
sound, an analog sound. Whereas with digital, yes, it's not the entire waveform of the whole thing. It's measurements of it, but it's such a mind-boggling number of measurements with a mind-boggling amount of information that most people say not only can you not tell what's lost in a digital recording, some people say digital recordings are actually better. Right, but to be clear, we are talking about a digital recording as in a CD. Right. Uh, which has about four, a little more than 1,400 kilobits per second uh, worth of information, which is super high. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're talking, you know, streaming something from a streaming service, there is a difference. And you don't have to be an audiophile to tell. Uh, it is a thinner sound. It's tinnier. Uh, it is compressed down from the CD size, which is a little over 1,400, to between 96 and 160 mm-hmm. uh, kilobits per second. So th- that's a, a lot of compression going on. And Dave points out that you, um, like, you're probably playing that through, like, in a Bluetooth speaker maybe or yeah. earbuds. Yeah. Not very good quality. If you uh, if you do think records sound better, it's probably because you're at your audiophile friend's house who collects records and who also plays it through a really high-quality amplifier instead of speakers. So, you know, the sound between – the difference between that and uh, streaming something through a Bluetooth speaker earbuds is just night and day. Yeah, because so that the the sam the bit rate is just the number of measurements taken, right? And measurements are not exact. It's a kind of a snapshot of the thing. It's not the whole thing. Like a record is the whole sound wave. But I ran across something, Chuck, that just kind of puts the whole argument to bed. And I noticed it in that video you sent about how records are made at that record uh-huh. um, manufacturer in Nashville. Did you notice that they started out with a digital file? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was a a Pro Tools file. It was. So they transferred a digital file onto a record. Uh So the whole difference for anything that's ever been put to a record from a digital file is out the window. Your argument's just totally moot because you started out with a digital file. Yeah, but it's a huge digital file. Sure, but it's still digital, which means it's not a, a precise representation of the exact same, same thing. But other people say, well, a record's not either. There's just too many, too much room for error. It can't possibly be precise. But I think you said it. You don't have to choose. Yeah, agreed. You got anything else about vinyl records? Because I could keep going, man. This is fun. A uh, little fun tidbit about my mom. When she was little, living in Memphis, Tennessee, She, uh, my granddad took her into... I think it was called the Memphis Recording Studio. It's pretty on the nose. And uh, recorded her playing um, the clarinet or something and left with a record, and that later became Sun Records. So uh, technically my mom recorded <laughs> where Elvis Presley recorded. That is pretty amazing, man. I think that's true. That's the story I got. I'm sticking to it. I think that's a very charming story to end on, Charles. So let's uh, go instead to listener mail. How about that? Uh, yeah, this is a quickie about farting a lot after colonoscopies, which we talked about a bit. <laughs> okay. Uh, hey, guys. I am Chuck, the gastroenterology technician, mm-hmm. uh, huge fan of the show, and I don't think I missed a single episode. I was uh, Regarding your different experiences after colonoscopies, because I was super farty, and you don't remember being super farty, right? I was super high and don't remember Yeah, that's it. right. <laughs> uh, air is injected during the procedure to purposefully distend the colon for a better view of all the walls and easier passages to the Holy Land. And it Uh, makes your hands puff up like a Cabbage Patch Kid, (laughs) which everybody likes to see. 
Uh, some facilities use air, which will result in the fart party. Some facilities <laughs> use the more expensive carbon dioxide, which is absorbed by your colon, breathed out your lungs, and results in a more comfortable experience. Hmm. Uh, this is a possible cause for the difference between your experiences. Uh, you may still get a little gassy after CO2, um, but I can assure you that recovery rooms in the CO2 facility are not full of farts and is a more pleasant experience for the patient in general. Wait, did uh, you go to Bargain Bargain Barn Hospital for years? I went col to colonoscopies are us. <laughs> Spatula City. <laughs> or the colon barn. Uh, I guess so. It was pretty fun. I enjoyed the fart barn. Okay. Um, and this is from Chuck, and he says, uh, P.S., uh, GI is the best department, butts and guts for the win. Nice. Nice work, Chuck. Nice work, you too, Chuck. Uh, and if Josh. You, thanks, man. If you want to be like Chuck, either one, well, no, really the one that just wrote in, you can write in to us too and send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts my iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love at first listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.